was I was in the back, sitting in the back with Debbie and Bridget, uh, and Brian was standing up here doing the introduction. I made the comment to them that he just said everything about the Gospel of John and where we've been at that I was going to say in the introduction to my sermon. So I got out my pen and I scratched that off. And then he just prayed, which is what I was also going to do after the introduction to my sermon before we got into that. So now I'll just scratch that off. So we got the prayers and the introduction out of the way. Let me just say welcome to Faith Ruthen Church and a special welcome to those of you joining us online. It is an honor and privilege to be with you all this morning, um, sharing God's word with you. And um, I'll just say if you've got your Bibles with you, and we hope that you do, please just go ahead and turn to John chapter 18. And we'll get to that in a little bit. This message this morning is going to be heavily laden with Scripture, uh, and that's good because it's all God's Word, and God's Word is good. But it, this is a long Scripture reading, and, um, and we're going to throw some additional passages on top of everything after that. And um, you guys can do that. And while you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a little story. About 25 years or so ago, Debbie and I were going through a bit of a stressful and chaotic time in our lives. We had uh, just experienced the death of my father the year before, and our son Joseph had just turned three, and then I got the idea that it would be fun to leave the relative comfort and safety of our jobs here in Bloomington and sell our house and move up to Chicago. It wasn't. That was not a good idea. It was not fun. We spent the next year learning the logistics of Chicago life. And if, if you know us, you know that Debbie's from a really small town of 4,000 people. So for her, the culture shock was even larger than it was for me. But basically, learning a new job, finding a new house, figuring out Chicago traffic, learning about property taxes and how you know a gallon of milk doesn't cost in Chicago what it costs down in Bloomington, and schools, and on and on and on it goes, right? That's how we spent that year. It was chaotic and it was stressful. And sometime during the course of that year, I somehow adopted this phrase of God is my co-pilot. Now, I don't know where that came from, but whenever people would ask about the stressful or, or, or chaotic things in your life, and how are you guys managing all that? He'd be like, hey, no sweat. God is my co-pilot, right? Now, this was before the days of the internet. It had been invented, but Google hadn't even been invented yet. So you didn't hang out on the internet like you do today. So I don't know if I found that on a bumper sticker or where I found that. But hey, no problem. God is my co-pilot. Now, ironically, I was going through a little bit of a spiritual valley at that time. And so I wasn't even sure what I was saying was even true, that I even believed that God was my co-pilot, because I kind of felt like I was a little bit of a drift and a little bit of a loan. But that was my glib answer to basically kind of profess the faith that I was hoping to return to, and also avoid discussing any details about the free-for-all that had become our life at the time, right? Hey, no sweat. God is my co-pilot. Now, one day during my morning commute, I decided to take a shortcut to try to save some time off my drive and get to work a few minutes earlier. It didn't. It took about an extra 10 minutes, actually. But on the way, I passed this church that I'd never seen before on my drive to work, and as I got closer to this church, I saw the sign that they had out by the side of the road, and it, it said this, if God is your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat. Hmm. So that gave me pause for a little bit. I was a little taken aback by that message. 
And I'd love to tell you that that instantly changed our lives. It didn't. And the reason it didn't is because truth be told, I liked having God for my co-pilot. A co-pilot's job is to sit in that other seat and do what the pilot tells them to do. And the co-pilot's job is to help the pilot whenever the pilot needs something. But otherwise, the co-pilot's job is to sit there and not really do much. And that's the relationship that I wanted to have with God. I wanted to be completely in charge of my life, but have God at the ready whenever I needed him or felt um, that I needed some help. But obviously that doesn't work. Being a Christ follower means that we follow. We don't get to steer or set the course. And God made us in his image. We don't make God in our image. And so while I didn't immediately change my life that day, I can tell you this, I never said that phrase again, except in recounting this story. And every day since then, I've been working ever so slowly, mind you, to get out of the driver's seat, let God have the pilot seat, and submit my life completely to him. And as we go through this reading today, which is kind of lengthy, I want you to look out for the differences. We're going to hear about Jesus being arrested, and we're going to hear about how Peter, during that time, handles himself while Jesus is being arrested and questioned by the high priest. And so on one hand, you're going to have Jesus, and on the other hand, you're going to have Peter. And just note the differences in the way um, that these two handle themselves during this reading. Chapter 18, verse 1. Hopefully you've gotten enough time to get there. It'll be up on, this, on the screen otherwise. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. The other Gospels identify this as the Garden of Gethsemane, but John just leaves it out. He calls it this garden. And Jesus and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled that I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, if you remember back in John chapter 13, right at the Last Supper, Jesus had just washed all the disciples' feet, and um, Jesus said, hey, there's a betrayer among us. And where I'm going, you cannot follow. And all these words, right? This is the beginning of that farewell discourse that Pastor Brian talked about uh, at the beginning of worship this morning. And Peter declared in John 13, 
I will lay down my life for you. And it seems like he's living into that promise, right? He pulls out a sword. He's attacking the high priest's servant. He's showing his courage and his commitment to Jesus. But it's a futile and foolish gesture. Verse 3 tells us that Judas arrived with a detachment of Roman soldiers. A detachment. Other gospel versions use the word cohort. And a cohort is actually defined as up to 600 Roman soldiers. Now, we don't know how many soldiers exactly that there were. It's hard to believe that they sent 600 soldiers, but they sent a lot. The other gospels in the Bible simply say a large crowd was there with Judas. But there's a lot of people there, more than enough to handle Jesus and his disciples, and certainly more than enough to handle one guy with a sword. So while, you know, Peter seemed like he was doing a loyal and courageous thing uh, and being willing to fight for Jesus, it was really kind of a dumb move because all he's going to do is invite a smackdown by the Roman soldiers. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went in with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Now, hard to believe it's the same Peter, right? Just a few minutes ago, he's swinging a sword around at a guy in front of a bunch of Roman soldiers, and here he is now standing, kind of cowering and withdrawing and denying that he even knows who Jesus is. Fear has taken over, and he's not being consistent in the way that he's acting. Verse 18, it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temples where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now this always confused me a little bit in reading this because they talk about taking Jesus to, um, to Caiaphas um, after uh, they, they took him to Annas, and they kind of refer to Annas and Caiaphas both as the high priest. And there's only one high priest, and the office is meant to be served for a lifetime. So 
The idea that Annas and Caiaphas are both referred to as the high priest was always a little bit confusing. So I just wanted to take a minute and explain what's going on there. But um, Annas had been the high priest and had served in that role, but he was actually deposed by a Roman prefect in uh, 15 AD. And so he was forcibly removed from the office by the Roman authorities. And so there was some question as to whether or not people still felt that he was the true high priest or not. But he still wielded a lot of power and influence within um, the, the Sanhedrin, and he actually appointed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to be the high priest. And so that's just a little bit of, a, of an explanation there as to why uh, Annas and Caiaphas are both referred to as the high priest. Verse 25, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And this is the end of the reading. So do you see the difference between Jesus handling himself during that questioning and Peter handling himself at the same time? On the one hand, you've got Jesus calm, cool, and collected, facing a mock trial, a sham trial, but just answering questions and defending God and fighting for all of humanity. And on the other hand, you've got Peter and his erratic behavior, right? Swinging a sword at the high priest's servant in one moment and then lying to save his own skin the next. Calm and cool and consistent, panicky and fearful and erratic on the other side. Now, like Peter, when we compare ourselves to Jesus... It becomes easy to see the ways in which we fall short, too, of who God has called us to be. We may never deny Jesus the way Peter did. We have that luxury because we live in a country where we can worship Jesus without the fear of persecution and torture and death. But Peter and many of our Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world today actually have that fear. But we don't know what it's like to actually imagine denying Jesus even once, let alone twice or three times. But I would argue that Peter actually denied Jesus four times that night. And surprisingly, his first denial takes place at the moment when we think Peter is acting the strongest. If we go back to verse 10 and verse 11 for just a minute, verse 10 tells us that when Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. And in verse 11, Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now Jesus didn't rebuke Peter for hurting somebody or for bringing on a beatdown from the Roman army and, and almost killing all the disciples in that moment. He rebuked Peter for not allowing Jesus to submit to God's will. He rebuked Peter for denying Jesus' purpose. And in that moment, he denied Jesus himself, his first denial. And we too 
deny Jesus whenever we put our personal desires before God's desire for our life. We deny Jesus whenever we refuse to follow his commands to love God and love others and go make disciples of all nations. We deny Jesus when we do that. I deny Jesus every time I forget that all people are God's children, made in his image, and he loves them, and therefore I need to love them too. That includes that moron who parks his cart in the middle of the aisle at the Walmart so I can't get to the things that I want to get off the aisle, right? And that includes his idiot cousin who drives in the left lane on the highway going 69 miles an hour passing a convoy of semis so I can't get through. See what I mean? You gotta love those people. And I deny Jesus every time I don't. I deny Jesus every time I seriously worry about the stock market and what's going on and whether or not we'll be able to retire anytime soon. I deny Jesus whenever I spend more time watching Netflix than I spend reading scripture throughout the week. And I deny Jesus every time I start considering what Debbie and I will do in our retirement without first considering and praying about what God wants us to do in ministry during our retirement. And I mention that specifically. We've got a lot of people in this congregation that have left Bloomington. They've left Faith Lutheran Church because they retired or because they took on a new job somewhere else. And when they got to their destination, we've heard this multiple times, I can't find a church. I can't find a ministry. We don't know what to do. And fortunately, many of these people still have the opportunity to join us online on Sunday morning, right? But if we consider what we're doing, if we're really putting God at the center of our lives, we might give some consideration to how we would serve in ministry before we take that new job or before we retire to a warmer climate or before we retire to be closer to our kids and our grandkids. So we deny Jesus all those times. What are the ways that you deny Jesus? Because when we really stop to think about what it means to deny Jesus, not having a sword or a gun put to your head and asking if you're a Christian and in that moment having to say yes or having to say no. When we really think about what it means to deny him, which means living with Jesus instead of living for Jesus, we continue to realize that we deny him all the time. When we live with Jesus instead of living for Jesus. But there's good news for all of us Jesus deniers. Dr. Doom and Gloom has left the building and Johnny Sunshine has arrived. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've been called Johnny Raincloud a number of times in my career. Good news, and I want to share it with you. Number one is God foresees our failures. He knows we're going to drop the ball. He knows we're going to fail, and he loves us anyway. When we go back to John 13, 37, when Peter said, God, I'll give my life for you, Jesus answered him, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. And he still washed his feet. And in the next chapter in John 14, he promised Peter and all the disciples that he would have a place in God's house. 
And just like Peter, God knows that we are all going to deny him too. And we're all going to fail him as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us this. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, of course, that doesn't give us license to sin freely. We want to avoid sin at all costs, and we want to repent of it when we do, and we want to try to lead changed lives and avoid it going forward. But when we do fail God, as we inevitably will, we can rest assured that God still loves us. That never changed. His love endures forever. So the first piece of good news is that God knows that we're going to sin, that we're going to deny Him, in fact, and He loves us anyway. And the second piece of good news is that God forgives us when we fail. God doesn't leave us in our sin and leave us separated from Him, and that's the whole point of this reading today. It's the whole point of the gospel and all the gospels is that Jesus was arrested and ultimately crucified and resurrected as a way to save us from our sins. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. God not only forgives our failures, but he chooses to use us in spite of them. In John chapter 21, verse 15, after Jesus was resurrected, and the disciples were fishing, and Jesus met them on the shore, Peter is reinstated by Jesus to be the head of the church in spite of the fact that he had just denied him three times. John 21, 15 says this, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. So not only does God love us, and does God forgive us? But he'll continue to use us and call us into ministry in spite of the fact that we sin and we deny him on a repeated basis. And the third thing that's good news is that God can actually use our failures themselves for his purpose. Not only does he use us when we fail, but he can actually use our failure to strengthen us for ministry. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, before Jesus predicts Peter's denial, he tells Peter that even though his faith may falter, 
he has prayed that it would not be destroyed and that instead it would become stronger. And he, Peter, would become a powerful leader. That verse from Luke is up on the screen now. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus' brother James says it this way. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So just like Peter, we deny Jesus repeatedly. And just like Peter, whenever we stumble and fail, we can find some sense of peace knowing that God continues to love us and God continues to forgive us and God continues to use us and that he can use those moments to grow our faith even stronger than it was before. We deny Jesus repeatedly even though we don't want to. And in spite of this, Jesus loves us. And he commands us to go love one another and make disciples of all nations in spite of the fact that we disappoint and we deny and we fall away. He still calls us to do those things. So let us live our lives for Jesus instead of living our lives with Jesus. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this message that you have provided to us this morning. Telling us about your son, Jesus. What an amazing man and Lord he is. Lord, we know that we will deny you and fall away in spite of ourselves. The Apostle Paul tells us that he and we along with him do the things that we do not want to do and fail to do the things that we do want to do. Lord, we are so sorry for the ways that we fail you. We're so sorry for the ways in which we deny you. But we thank you, dear Lord, that in spite of these ways, that you never give up on us, you never stop loving us, you never stop forgiving us, and you never stop calling us to be used in your service and in ministry to build your kingdom here on earth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.